0: So, here at Sky House, this month of November, some of you have been here practicing for a few days, a few weeks, some of you have been here for a few months, and some of you will be here for a few days longer, some a few weeks, some a few months. It can seem sometimes that we are in the midst of an ongoing process. A journey that has a particular direction and a certain linearity we begin, we continue and at some point we come to an end or so we imagine. And while it can be useful and helpful to conceive of Dharma practice in these terms. It's equally useful and important to examine or consider whether Dharma practice really is such a journey with a beginning, a middle and an end. The the sense of that journeying with a destination in mind often, I think, has a very strong and deeply rooted and well-reinforced connection or position underlying it. It's related to a position that suggests that somehow what and how and who we are is not okay, is not as it should be, is somehow in need of fixing, or in need of changing. And there's a certain validity to that and from again a, a certain perspective that makes sense and is helpful. And there is also a perspective and a way from which this is not so, it can seem to be not so. The idea that as a human being we are somehow in need of being purified or transformed is something that can be traced back to roots in many religious traditions that uh, we're probably familiar with. (laughs) the concepts of original sin or evil in Christianity are pretty well known and in Buddha Dharma the, uh, the word that gets used which is a little more user friendly I think, uh, ignorant though I feel slightly more skillfully it would be translated as blindness nonetheless suggests uh, perhaps certainly ignorance suggests something wrong. You, you know, being described as ignorant is not something we would generally receive as a, a compliment or even a neutral statement, but uh, something pejorative. And we can, in looking at, in examining our experience as we do in meditation practice, easily observe, I suspect, for all of you at times, aspects of that experience, thoughts, feelings, and particularly troubling perhaps intentions that arise for us that we don't feel we wish to subscribe to or support, which we might describe in Dharma language as coming from greed, from hatred, from delusion. And so then the, the view can form quite understandably that uh, we need to somehow purify or get rid of this particular aspect of our experience. Now in Buddha Dharma I think we must understand more usefully. We don't really relate to experience so much in terms of it being, well we do, but we're not so much encouraged to relate to our experience as being good or bad or to the things that arise within us as being evidence of purity or impurity, but more to actually look and see from the point of view of wholesomeness what conduces to suffering, what conduces to the end of it. And when we can look at it in this way, we see that what we are inclining towards, which we could call the wholesome, is simply that which leads towards the end of suffering. And that which we call unwholesome, that we're seeking to incline away from, is simply that which leads to suffering. And so the condition that leads us, or that brings us to act in these ways that we could describe as unwholesome, that leads to suffering, is one that we really haven't chosen. We haven't decided. Very few people, who we've seen, would set out intentionally on a journey to cause themselves suffering. This really doesn't make sense. And uh, therefore, I think some degree of forgiveness is possible, is useful with regards to our own behaviour, both our manifest physical behavior our words and equally our thoughts themselves and it's often in the context of in the context of a meditation retreat it's often the thoughts that cause the sense of suffering around experiencing within what we call ourselves something that we do not feel okay about that we feel is somehow wrong that we feel it somehow needs to be removed or Purify. And it's a very attractive concept or proposition, purification. We might be attracted to some image or ideal of purity. And yet, of course, when we uh, look at ourselves, we would, most of us, conclude that we are some distance removed from that. Perhaps some vast, and it seems un. or a vast and untraversable distance removed there is a way in which certain dimensions of dharma practice is actually directed or are actually directed towards the purification towards actually inviting into consciousness those uh, formations or sankharas. That we uh, have become entangled in the patterns, the habituated and uh, entrenched reactive patterns of mind and heart that lead to suffering, that are born of blindness, that manifest in greed and hatred and delusion. And that in developing a stillness and calmness of mind, we do, for a founda- as a foundation for insight practice and as the, uh, the uh, basis of uh, concentration, samadhi and also loving-kindness practice. There's a way in which, quite naturally, those what we call defilements sometimes in dharma practice, though I personally don't really like the word, because again it suggests something uh, pejorative, something that we would judge or that would uh, reinforce the sense of uh, being defiled, somehow being defined by those particular formations, those uh, patterns, in such a way as that we are to regard ourselves as unwholesome or impure. And I think this way of regarding oneself is actually quite unhelpful in Dharma practice. And yet at the same time we become aware of, we notice these things. And probably for all of you there's been ample opportunity to see, to observe, to experience firsthand patterns of behaviour, of reactivity within that we might either feel uncomfortable with or may actually experience quite immediately and directly suffering because of. And the view that can arise out of this is very easy, the view that there's something impure in here, that I am impure, and I need to fix that, and this is what the journey of practice is, to bring about purity, it seems. The view, I am impure, is not uncommon, but is. A Fortunately, not true. The way in which we identify with the particular formations, the particular constructions of mind, of reactivity, that are born of and that manifest as greed, as hatred, as confusion and delusion, to understand that these do not ultimately define who and what we are. This is one of the most important elements of exploration in meditation and one of the keys to a profound deepening in our lives and our practice that we are not that we are not defined by that this isn't to say that we somehow don't we don't somehow have a responsibility for addressing, for dealing with such patterns, such reactivity. Seeing that they cause suffering for ourselves and for others, recognizing that the world is profoundly and tragically impacted by the by the force and the effect of greed, of hatred and of delusion. One is moved and of course hopefully deeply moved to transform me. and yet if we do so from a place of somehow feeling that we are defiled or we are evil, which is the, the stronger language, but the one that certainly in the western psyche seems to be embedded in there quite often for us with a sense of profound guilt or shame or a sense of unworthiness because of the manifestation and the arising at times of such we could call unwholesome formation. Because of that there's often a way in which in which the engagement with practice is actually driven by a, a sort of fear, perhaps a dread and also a, a lack of deep self-appreciation and love. And also by a sense of desperation. Because it seems there is so much of this to deal with in ourselves, in this world. That we have to work at it pretty hard. We have to rush at it pretty far. And that there's always the lingering doubt in the back of the mind that no matter how much I address, no matter how much practice I do, there will always be this vast mountain of stuff to deal with. And for those who have been practicing a few years, perhaps a few decades, and maybe even have the suspicion we've been doing this for quite a few lifetimes, noticing that in fact despite all of that there still seems to be plenty here to go on with, can sometimes be a little disheartening. And I think that's unfortunate but not surprising in a certain way. The Buddha himself (coughs) spent seven years practicing various spiritual techniques and forms that were prevalent in the part of India where he lived at that time of history, which were very much driven by the sense of purification, of somehow having to root out and destroy all those things within the mind, body, heart process that seem to lead to suffering. And after seven years of intense practice, developing very deep and profound concentration states which do have a purifying effect, practicing intense and uh, Dream, it would seem, austerity, torturing and punishing his body, born of a a view, described as mortification of the body. The idea that by killing the body, which is what mortification means, killing it effectively, it would be subdued, or the urge of the body would be subdued. And in both the um I mean, in some ways, concentration practices, the mortification of the thinking mind, just to actually still the thinking mind, to actually bring it to cessation through samadhi, also does not actually bring the freedom that the Buddha was seeking and this was something he discovered for himself. Awakening does not arise out of a process of purification. Because the process of purification is always bound to the idea of a position in which we are and another position to which we are moving, i.e. the position I am is impure and the position to which I'm going is purity. And it's in the journey towards that somehow the idea that we will arrive at a place where we can rest, where we can say, "Oh." This is purity. This is not possible. So long as we're thinking, relating, and conceiving in those terms, the journey will always continue. And it's important to acknowledge that one aspect of the journey of our life is this and will always continue. This is not something that comes to an end. And yet there is that dimension and aspect of the journey which comes to an end, we could say. And it's perhaps useful to understand this as a purification of our views. Dharma practice being transformative on the basis of the wisdom that it generates. And wisdom is something which reveals where our views are actually not in accord with the way things are and that when we act on those views we suffer. Wisdom is equally that perception or that understanding which when we act in accordance with it leads to the reduction and the end of suffering. And so what we purify in practice is not ourselves, because to seek to purify the self is only to actually reinforce it, is to actually give it a somewhat different but just as ongoing and unsatisfactory, unsatisfying basis for itself. Entangled engagement with life. We're not seeking to purify the self in meditation practice and Dharma teaching. We could say perhaps we're learning to purify our receptivity, the capacity to receive any and every moment, any and every experience just as it is, to allow that capacity of heart and mind. To actually deeper and to become unobstructed, and unobstructed, unconditional receptivity is the basis for the deeper transformation that Dharma practice invites. We're also invited to, we could say, purify our view. And the core element of the view that we look into the world from, that we need to consider, that we need to address, is the sense of self and separation, The particularly that distinction we make between what we call me and what we call other. Sometimes when we talk and conceive of non-self we think about it as somehow the annihilation of the personality structure which modern Western psychology talks about as the self and uh, that's not all of what is being suggested and it's not always accurate in its implication And that we're not annihilating the personality structure but actually examining it to understand how it functions and what it actually is and to see in that examination that some of how it functions can serve us and some of how it functions does not and that ultimately it is a structure which can have a useful function but that it is not what we are More usefully I feel for for most of us as a reflection rather than thinking of somehow purifying or getting rid of self is to look at the way we relate from a position of I am this or equally I am not that. Anywhere we take such a position because when we say I am not this to some experience arising that's all very well and fine if it's a response to the tendency to believe I am that. We see some thought arising, we observe our body with some degree of identification, we notice the sense of, that's me, that's my body, or my thinking. So we can respond usefully and skillfully by the, the recognition, oh, I'm not that, that's actually not what I am. That's something arising, something changing, something impermanent. It's not self. But if we go so far as to then make a position that says, no, I'm not that, and I'm therefore somehow distant from it, or therefore somehow it's not my responsibility. We've gone too far. We've simply created the polar opposite position. And this is simply to take self in a position of not-self. Because it is that identification with being, any particular or not any particular, that creates the, the ring, we could say, the tear, or the, the breach in the sense of wholeness and the undivided nature of life and the indivisible nature of truth It is the positioning that we take that creates what we could call a sense of impurity that suggests that one thing is okay and another thing is not that's really a lot of what purity is about the idea that there is something pure and inside it there's something that's not pure and we've got to get that stuff that's not pure out of here meditation practice is to see the end to see the emptiness To see the illusory nature of the distinction that we make between what we call ourselves and what we call another. Between what we call here and what we call there. Between what we call now and what we call any other time. make no separation is to realize freedom separation is constructed and created by the way we look at relate to and react to the world and the world of course in this case including all that we call our mind and our body and equally all that we call the mind and or the body or the form of anything else. All this is the world. So what then might we usefully speak of as purity? Look for yourself what happens when you set one thing apart from another. In any way when we do this we find ourselves inhabiting the gap between the two. And this is suffering. When we set one thing apart from another, we are suspended in the unreality of the gap between the two. And Dhamma practice is to see that this gap has no reality. does not exist. is simply a way of thinking about things or talking about things but that ultimately is not true though it has its useful function for day-to-day purposes in order to know which room we should go and find a pair of socks that will actually fit and that won't upset someone else by our wearing them we should go to our room obviously And for many other reasons all of that makes sense but it's not something we can rest our life on that way of relating, of conceiving because it doesn't have the it doesn't have the depth to hold it and therefore, we, when we try and rest our life on that kind of conceiving, we find ourselves, as, as it were, falling through into the gap, into the space. That we experience as a sense of lostness, as a sense of disconnection, as a sense of somehow being bereft, without necessarily knowing what it is we have lost. Or what is missing or what has happened even that we find ourselves in this condition. And the easy and understandable reaction is to focus upon all the things that seem to be uncomfortable or problematic or unskillful and unwholesome. We start off from a less say wise or mature position where just anything that's uncomfortable we want to get rid of it. And this is the form of purification that we think. If it hurts, get it out of here. If it's unpleasant, uncomfortable, unflattering, I don't want it. In meditation practice we see that that actually leads to more suffering. And we can perhaps begin to release the force or momentum of that urge, that deeply conditioned tendency. And then we simply perhaps, or often give attention to that that tendency itself as the problem the tendency to want to get rid of those unpleasant things then becomes what we see as something unskillful not particularly wholesome not leading to happiness and then that becomes the thing we wish to get rid of to purify ourselves from and again while that an appropriate and skillful and beneficial direction to engage ourselves in it's not something that comes to an end by itself And there is, I think, that within us that deeply, yearns for that, seeks to know that place of rest, the place of, or the dimension of simple abiding, of peace, of relief. What is this? we might ask and if we do so, which is useful, to ask not with a mind that wants to know the answer but just with a willingness to truly sense and feel the question itself and the deeper call of our life that asks it We're not really here in the end to fix ourselves, to make ourselves better, or to become something other than what we already are. What we're here to do is to understand, to recognize, to realize what is true. And how easily it can be that what we become is preoccupied with addressing all the things that are going on, all the experiences that are arising. In this context I'd like to uh, tell the story of Hui Neng, one of the uh, great Zen ancestors, who was a kitchen hand in a monastery in the uh, early Middle Ages. And uh, the abbot of the monastery was old and near death. He decided to select his successor from amongst the uh, the residents of the monastery, but rather than just choosing who it would be, he decided that he would have a competition. He said, okay, I want everyone to write a poem expressing the deepest understanding. And the poem which expresses the deepest understanding, the writer of that poem shall be the new abbot. And so the second most senior and very venerable and respected monk, went and wrote a poem on the wall. And when all the other monks saw it, they thought, oh, such a wise monk. He, he must be the wisest monk amongst us, after our abbot. And no no one even bothered to try and compete with this poem, it seemed so wise. But Hui he was just a kitchen hand, not even ordained, although had had some exposure to Dharma teachings and was already very wise. He came across this poem and uh, not being able to read asked someone if they would read it to him and when he heard it he realised in fact this was not the deepest wisdom although it was indeed a wise poem it was not the deepest wisdom and so he wrote another or in fact asked someone to write it for him and uh, as you can probably guess given the way the story started uh, (laughs) when the abbot saw the two poems he uh, declared in fact that the poem was Huai Ning was the wisest. So the first poem written by the second most senior monk at the abbot was this, he said The body is a Bodhi tree, the mind a mirror bright. Hour by hour we polish them and let no dust alight. (coughs) And in this, I think reasonably clearly expressing that Vision of Dharma practice in which one is constantly taking care of mind and body in order to clear or to purify or to remove the, uh, the dust, the, the defilement, the impurity, we could say, the latent tendencies towards greed, hatred and delusion. In Huay Ling's poem in response was this: He said, "There is no Bodhi tree." Or stand of mirror bright. Since all is void and empty, where could the dust alight? I think it's a remarkable poem. There is no Bodhi tree, body, or stand of mirror bright, mind. So interestingly mind, he's not saying there's no mirror, he says there's no stand. Mm-hmm. It's like there's no form of this thing. He's not denying the existence of mind, or ultimately of body actually, but Since all is void and empty, where could the dust alight? He's not denying the existence of dust either. He's not saying, oh, there's no such thing as greed or hatred. But there's nowhere for it to land. What does that mean? there's nowhere for it to land where could the dust alight if all things are void if all things are empty what happens when we stop being so preoccupied with the particular with focusing upon the things that seem to need fixing which are perhaps innumerable if not infinite What happens when our fascination with the form and the content of experience begins to soften or drop away and we actually become more interested in the simple fact of life being present right here in and around us. What happens when we we allow ourselves to just stop the process of going somewhere, becoming someone, getting something. What happens? What is revealed? What do you notice in a moment of total wholehearted and committed presence awareness? consciousness, mindfulness, whatever we call it, what do we notice about that very process that's happening in which it's all revealed? The very fact of this manifestation itself rather than what happens to be manifested. What happens when we tune in, when we attune ourselves to this? When we notice the particulars, the things, the events that come and go, of course it seems that some are wholesome and some are not, and therefore the idea of purity and the journey of purification arises. And yet, if we look at the very fact of our being here at all, it doesn't seem to arise or pass, it's just happening. When we Notice that there's a common element in every moment that doesn't actually move from one moment to another but that's there in all moments it perhaps begins to suggest that the idea of there being more than one moment is just an idea and that the idea of there being some kind of experience happening to someone who's making it happen or being subject to its happening doesn't really matter because it's simply just this it's simply just this and of wish we could say there is something of purity but it's not something that's made not something that could ever be made impure. It's simply what it is. Just as the clear blue sky is unaffected by clouds that pass through it, not felt doesn't feel too disappointed when it's gray and stormy. Nor get particularly excited about rainbows or flashes of lightning. It's just, it's what's there. The weather comes and goes, of course. And we, in relationship to that weather, feel pleased or disappointed. But the sky? It's simply open, receptive, revealing. And yet it contains everything Reveals everything So May you your practice come to realize this that you are that all is and that equally is all and to practice abiding in the vastness of the conscious present to simply now just this. Just this.